writers could provide power almost indefinitely. Greenhouses could maintain plant life. Animals could be bred and slaughtered. Hello and welcome to GoonPod, the podcast which, with the help of guests, uh, examines the Goon Show and solo Goon projects. Uh, although I think I draw the line at Harry Seacombe's Christmas album. This time round, it's the welcome return of podcasting's favourite son, Adam Leslie. Hello, that's a very nice thing to be called. I'm not sure it holds up under scrutiny, but I'll take it. First of all, I'd like to just take the opportunity to, to thank Adam for um, the wonderful theme tune that uh, he composed, which I was entirely enchanted by when I heard it for the first time. You're more than welcome. Today we've been watching the darkly satirical Cold War classic Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, I thought it would make a nice change from actually looking at a goon show itself. It's quite tonally on the opposite end of the scale, I think. Um, I mentioned before that one of the things that pulled me out of my annoying mid-teens goon obsession was that I'd suddenly got into cinema. I um, found a book in the library called Fantastic Cinema by an Australian writer called Peter Nichols. And I'd not really been a big fan of film until that point. It had not particularly been on my radar. I was into Star Wars. I liked Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, you know, the films that I saw in the 80s at the cinema, all the things that, like, young kids are into. But generally, as far as cinema went, for me, it was the longer and more boring cousin of TV. It hadn't really featured in my mind at all, apart from when I was quite little. 2001 A Space Odyssey was shown on TV. Oh, yes. And my dad said, oh, it's a science fiction film on TV. You like science fiction. I said, oh, brilliant science fiction film. And he said, actually, first half's quite boring. You won't like it. And now I think about it, the second half's quite boring as well. <laughs> uh, but I sat down to watch it and it absolutely blew my mind. My tiny little eight-year-old mind. I'd not seen anything like it. It was utterly transportative. Just so unlike anything I'd ever seen or experienced before. And it gave me weird dreams for nights afterwards. And it completely sort of changed my outlook on things. So for me, this was a standalone film. But this book called Fantastic Cinema, it featured articles about 2001 in it. So I thought, I'll get that out and I'll read about 2001. And then reading about all the other films and realising that cinema has these depths and layers to it and I just became utterly consumed by cinema as an art form and as a mode of expression and finally finding out about all the things that cinema can do and yes. going from a kid that was into Star Wars and Temple of Doom to somebody who really wanted to see Three Women by Robert Altman or Celine and Julie <laughs> go boating or that kind of thing. Wow. So it was a bit of a yeah a bit of a, an about face but in this section about Stanley Kubrick there's a film with Peter Sellers from The Goons in it. How could this not be my <laughs> favourite film ever? This is going to be brilliant and fantastic. And well, of, of course, of course there, was, there, was, there was two Kubrick films, Stanley Kubrick films with Peter yes. Sellers in. Have you seen Lolita? I have, yes. Yeah. So I haven't seen it for a while. That one came to me a bit later because it's not in the Fantastic Cinema book because that book was only about fantasy, horror or science fiction, anything supernatural or otherworldly. So Lolita was one of his straight films, so I hadn't I hadn't ventured into that one at that point. So I think Doctor Strangelove would have been the first Kubrick film I ever saw, uh, but I'll come back to that because I went through about five or six years ago. Uh, I went through a period of just watching all the Kubrick films, ah. um, and I and I watched two thousand and one for the first time on Blu Ray, which was which blew my mind. I mean, it's got so much in it, Hasn't and it's it? yeah. so incomprehensible. And it's got it's got Leonard Rossiter, 
um, who of course also pops up in Barry Lyndon. It's got a baby at the end, I think. Is mm-hmm. it a giant baby? Giant baby um, in a bubble. Yes, sir. And and I saw that. I, I watched Clockwork Orange, uh, which I was a bit mm, about. I watched Barry Lyndon, which I loved. But my favourite Kubrick film of all is Paths of Glory with oh, Kirk really? Douglas. Yeah. Ah. Which, have you seen that? I have, yeah. Not for a long time. As I say, Doctor Strangelove was, was the first Kubrick film I saw. And, and on, on the strength of it having Sellers in, my sort of fledgling goon obsession began in 1988. That Christmas, or possibly the Christmas after, I can't quite yeah. remember, I got given, among other things, I got given three videos of Sellers films. One of them was The Mouse That Roared. The The other was uh, the Only Two Can Play, which I think is based on a Kingsley Amos that Rings of Bell, yeah. yeah. And he plays a Welsh librarian, I think. And, and the third was Dr. Strangelove. And I sat and I watched them all and I loved Mouse That Roared and I, and I was I was pretty on board with Only Two Can Play. And I enjoyed Strangelove, but I, at the age of 14 and being quite green in many respects, right. most of it sort of, most of it went over my head. I think I just took it at face value. I didn't really understand it at first. Mm. And I, and, but I remember sort of sitting up a bit when Strangelove himself turns up about halfway through the film because that was that was to me the most overtly goonish character very similar to the character he does on the hard day's night is it that that's she right. loves you yeah his version of she yes. loves you he does Doc, that's Doctor right strange love i saw her yesterday it is you that she is thinking of and she is telling me what to say she says she loves you yeah 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 and it's a, and it echoes of I guess, yeah, I mean, he did a, a semi-regular character in The Goons called uh, Justin Eidelberger. Right. He was a sort of Teutonic character who who turned up in a number of shows, um, but he was a little bit more grounded than, than Strangelove. And obviously he did, Sellers did lots of German sort of offices mm-hmm. whenever they did um, World War II parodies on The Goons. I was a little bit sort of bewildered, I suppose, by Doctor Strangelove when I first saw it, but it's only with subsequent viewings that I've I've really come to love it. Yeah, I think it's if you're not prepared for quite how dark and how actually serious it is, beyond the jokes, you know, the the bizarreness of it and the satire, it's a very serious film, really. I I howled with laughter at it because the jokes are so good and the performances are so good. But I remember my dad again saying that he's never found it funny because he lived through the Cold War and he lived through that time in the early 60s when you thought you could look out the window and see the mushroom clouds at any moment and that kind of thing. So he's sort of had that lingering thing of he's never found Dr. Strangelove funny and there's me as sort of like a teenager in the early 90s roaring with laughter at the performances and the jokes and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, it was filmed, it would have been filmed mid-63 and that, that would have been less than 12 months after the Cuban Missile of course, crisis. Yeah. Um, so I can understand the the the, feel, the uneasiness of contemporary uh, cinema audiences watching it. Uh, you think back though, you and I are more or less the same age. You know, in the early to mid '80s, with Reagan in power, there was Star Wars, yes. um, and uh, mutually assured destruction was kind of there was a big question mark over that because of Star Wars, and and the Cold War was really sort of heating up in 83, 84, but myself being at that time, nine or 10 years old and living down under, 
I had no conception of that. I had no right. the, I, Cold War fear, Cold War paranoia was something completely alien to me. Um, and so when I saw the film, it, it just it just fell flat as far as I was concerned on my first viewing. As I say, when I subsequently watched it as a, as an adult, I picked up on so much more. Yeah, it's incredible thinking back about the '90s because the Cold War basically ground to a halt. Mm. It kind of very, fizzled out overnight, really, didn't it? Yeah, very early '90s, and again, you know, you just kind of, I just kind of accepted it without much thought. But, <laughs> but you look back, you think the '90s was such an incredibly peaceful time. They uh, really were, weren't they? Someone called it the end of history. So I want to look at where Sellers was in his career and his life when Strange Love was being filmed. It went out in '64. It was going to, I believe, it was going to be. The first audience test screening was going to be on the 22nd of November, 63. But something else happened that day, so they pulled it and um, released it in January, 64. Hastily editing out uh, and overdubbing some lines as well, which would not have been very appropriate in the light of JFK's assassination. So obviously, I mean, Sellers had worked with Kubrick on Lolita, where he was uh, Claire Quilty. He seemed chunkier. He seemed a lot chunkier. I mean, his weight sort of fluctuated uh, more or less in the 50s and into the early 60s. And then he sort of got down to the the sort of slimmed down post-heart attack sellers. Yes, uh, I think think maybe he, by the time he was a film star, he took on the, took the film star thing very serious and presented glamorous, dashing Peter Sellers as he saw it. Yes. I think I read he always had this urge to actually be a leading man and not necessarily have to do the ridiculous comedy roles. Yeah, because you look at him in Casino Royale, he's he's trying to be James Bond, isn't he? Yes. But so, no, he was an elite, got on famously with Kubrick. Kubrick's a difficult man and so was Sellers. So they had some common interests like photography that they kind of bonded over. Mm -hmm. And I think Kubrick... And and awkwardness. And awkwardness. (laughs) And Kubrick recognised the comic genius of Sellers and, and kind of well I don't know with so, so much with Lolita but certainly in Strangelove he he gave Sellers a lot of room to improvise but so sort of following Lolita Sellers made uh, Wrong Arm of the Law, uh, Heavens Above and then The Pink Panther um, and then he worked on Strangelove uh, and soon after filming Strangelove he he was working on The World of Henry Orient and A Shot in the Dark and it was around the time that Shot in the Dark was coming out that Brett Eklund and he met very soon after that, he had the first of countless heart attacks and clinically died for a short period of time. And after that, he was, well, the prevailing theory is he was never quite the same after he had those heart attacks. And also around 63, 64, he was also providing voices for the Tallygoons TV series. He had recorded, I don't know if you've heard the LP that he recorded with Anthony Newley and Joan Collins I don't believe I have. Um, no, it was called uh, Full Britannia. Uh, I think that was 62, 63. And I think that was that was just cashing in on the satire boom of the period. And it was uh, sketches about, I think, Harold Macmillan. It was uh, with the deepest regret that I learned of the terrible news that has shot this house in the nation and indeed the world. The news that a minister of my cabinet had committed a grave miskeela with misdemeanor. Uh, the Cold War in general, just politics, 
So, so Sellers obviously cut his satire, satirical teeth, working on that. And then he came to to make Strange Love with Kubrick. Mm. Based on a novel by Peter George uh, called Red Alert, mm-hmm. which wasn't a funny book. So no. um, Stanley Kubrick and the other writer they drafted in, uh, Terry Southern, they decided that the whole thing was... Just the whole idea of mutually assured destruction was just so silly and just such a ridiculous idea that it would be more effective played as a comedy. Terry Southern had written the novel of The Magic Christian, which Peter Sellers had very much enjoyed. And Peter Sellers had given Kubrick a copy of The Magic Christian, and that's why Kubrick got in contact with Southern. And obviously a few years later, uh, Sellers filmed The Magic Christian. He did with Ringo Starr. And it's a hot mess, and I <laughs> really, really love it. It, it. I mean, that film has got so many goonish elements to it. Um, I showed it, to, uh, some friends and I watched it relatively recently, and, and one of them who, who you know was watching it for the first time was, was pretty nonplussed by it, pretty unimpressed <laughs> by it. And I'm there saying, come on, come on, you know, just, you know, just, just, just go with it. Just let it wash over you. Come on. It's great. But yeah, it's particularly the scene at the end with the big vat full of um, excrement and urine. <laughs> blood. <laughs> Have you seen, I'm taking, I take it you've seen Magic Christian. No, again, not for a long, long time. I need to watch it again. I think I was slightly nonplussed by the whole thing as well, right. <laughs> but I do need to watch it again at some point. I think the, the draw for me was... A beetle and a goon being in it, but yes, uh, yes. I, I need to actually take it on its own terms as well and not expect too much. Plus, we have the um, uh, Badfinger doing the soundtrack. Yes, yes, well. absolutely. Um, I did a, I actually did a, a bit of an informal, non-scientific Twitter poll last week because I knew we were we were going to be talking about Strange Love, and I just basically asked people what, in their opinion, was the best Peter Sellers film. Oh, okay. And I, and I got a really good response actually. You know, more than three people. And, uh, I mean, uh, do, do you care to take a guess as to what was the overall number one? I would have said this one, but if, if I'm going to hedge my bets and it isn't this one, people on Twitter, I'm going to say The Party. Even though it's really? not one I particularly like, I think it's one that possibly Twitter, being a bit contrary, might like. <laughs> the Party was number six. <laughs> right, Okay. No, being there was number one. Of course, being there, I'd completely forgotten about that. Yes, yeah. no, that that uh, totally makes sense. Yeah, then Doctor Strangelove, then I'm Alright Jack, which I was a bit surprised about. Great okay. film, but I was I was surprised. Yeah. Shot in the Dark and Two Way Stretch, um, which I suppose my top five would be A Shot in the Dark, Two Way Stretch, Doctor Strangelove, Magic Christian, and After the Fox. I think Two Two Way Stretch is is a forgotten little forgotten gem, actually. I've forgotten it. I don't know if I've even seen that. <laughs> yeah, it's got Lionel Jeffries. Oh, he's always good. You know, his spittle-flecked chin, basically, you know, <laughs> tooth enamel flying, because he's just pretty much throughout the film totally enraged, because it's set in a set in a prison. Yeah. And it's um, it's Sellers, it's uh, Bernard Cribbins, and the ubiquitous David Lodge, who pretty much his career was built on appearing in Peter Sellers films, because <laughs> they were mates. But look, we're getting off the point. Mm. Yeah, um, Terry Southern, um, he's one of those chaps who just for a brief period of time seemed to be everywhere. That, like He's got credits on the writing of Easy Rider, which is quite a diverse mm. thing when you're looking at things like Magic Christian and Doctor Strange. If you're out there in Easy Rider territory, he appeared on the cover of Sgt. Pepper, which is quite... The, 
most of the people on Sgt. Pepper are quite sort of leg- legendary or mythic characters or writers, you know, writers and actors from a long time ago. Um, but you've got the occasional contemporary person like like Terry Southern or uh, the actor Timothy Carey's on there as well, who's also got a Kubrick connection. Yes, because he, he was in, he was in uh, Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory and in The Killing as well. Oh, yes, he was. Mm. Yes. And in one of my favourite films, Head, the monkey's film, which oh, I mention as often as possible. God. <laughs> one of my least favourite films. <laughs> Although I do like the music. The music's great. Yes, the music's excellent. I knew that both the, they were on the, the Pepper album cover, but I can't remember how that came about. Did, do you know, did you check no, as to what the reason was? No, I, I think it was pretty much Paul and John decided most of the people on there so i think it was would have been would have been one of their choices i think all of george's choices at that time were uh indian gurus and yeah. religious figures and i may be misremembering this but ringo was pretty much happy with what anyone else wanted to choose was it, Which, uh, didn't yeah didn't ringo just like throw in a few like sort of musical comedians or people like possibly. izzy bond yeah could well be <laughs> sort of meat and two veg uh <laughs> entertainers mm-hmm Another um, character I want to uh, mention in, before we get into the, the meat of the film itself is the director of photography, Gilbert Taylor. So he was responsible for that very evocative, contrasty black and white uh, photography of the film. Yes. And he has got an amazing list of credits. I want to just uh, read his credits out. as, And this is just his credits as the cinematographer. So his list of credits are... And this is the only the most well-known ones. He did The Dam Busters, Ice Cold in Alex. He did The Rebel and The Punts and Judy Man. He did Doctor Strangelove, of course. He did A Hard Day's Night. Oh, wow. Uh, mm. Repulsion. He did Frenzy, yeah. Hitchcock's final film. Soft Beds ah. and Hard Battles. Ah. The Omen. And then we get into The Outlier. He did Star Wars. And he did uh, Flash Gordon. God. So that's quite a collection of films. He died in 2013 at the age of 99. So he had, he had a pretty good run. I mean, that is some going, that, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I can totally see uh, Hard Day's Night also being also one of my all-time favourite films. I can totally see that being the same eye because they both have that similar, very contrasty, very mm. evocative uh, photography style to them. Yes. And I think yes. actually they, they make very good companion films because if you see A Hard Day's Night, which is, it also came out in 19, 1964, you think, oh, 1964 looks great. I'd love to go. It seems really cosy and fun and, you know, quite quirky and parochial. And you just go there and just, just slightly pre-swinging London and have a nice time. And then you watch Dr. Strangelove and you realise they had this spectre of instant death hanging over their heads at the same time as well. So they're, they're sort of like flip sides of each other. Yeah. Wouldn't you like to, wouldn't you love just to run around a field in black and white? <laughs> it would be great. And- and just sit on a train with Richard Vernon, mm-hmm. Wilfred Bramble. <laughs> so the film begins more or less with we meet Air Force, US Air Force General Jack D. Ripper, mm. played by Sterling Hayden. That's right. Another notoriously difficult character. I think he, Kubrick, quite liked the challenge of casting notoriously difficult characters. Yeah. I mean, George C. Scott was not the easiest of actors as oh, well, so he's got no. he's got the three of them to contend with on the same film. He just needed Orson Welles or someone like that. Just yes. to... <laughs> I mean, for a kickoff, the name Jack D. Ripper on the nose a little bit. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. So a lot of the uh, 
character names are on the the nose really aren't they but that's sort of part of the fun of it <laughs> it's very much yeah. its own little world did you do you think because i don't know if this is my own theory but it's something i picked up on now obviously jack d ripper you know implies jack the ripper um but with the character's preoccupation with bodily fluids could it also be jack dripper <laughs> i had never thought of that yeah. i don't know if that would be intended but i like the i like the idea it's interesting that another one of the characters, Keenan Wynn's character, is called uh, uh, Bat Guano because he's batshit mm. crazy. Um, <laughs> but you'd think that character name would suit uh, Jack D. Ripper more because yes. he's the one who's crazy and actually Keenan Wynn's character isn't crazy. That's right. So, so yeah. I don't know if they thought about it in any great detail. They just gave them funny names <laughs> that sort of suited the, suited the slightly Dickensian naming system of this world. Yeah, and and Jack D. Ripper would be well at home on social media in <laughs> He really would. I was thinking that he's he's a proper <laughs> conspiracy theorist. <laughs> he'd have been an anti-vaxxer. He'd have been a fully paid up member of the John Birch Society. <laughs> yeah, he'd, he'd have been retweeting David Icke. <laughs> You've got Sellers playing group captain Lionel Mandrake, who's on some sort of is it some sort of exchange program? It's an officer exchange program. Yes. Mm. And it, he's kind of, as, as the film progresses, he's desperately trying to reverse the situation that, mm. that Ripper has engineered, which is basically dispatching his uh, his bomber wing to drop drop nuclear bombs on the Soviet Union because they are they are sapping his uh, bodily essence, fluids. Yeah. Bodily fluids. The uh, fluoridization of water. Yeah. But not just water, all manner of things, including ice cream, children's ice cream. <laughs> I'm I, I, I'm going to put my film student hat on occasionally. Please uh, do. And talk about sort of uh, parallels between Kubrick films and that kind of thing. And I think he is the first of the classic Kubrick archetype of a character who's, who's completely flipped which is uh, the one that he'll come back to again. So you'll get in the next film, you get um, Hal completely flips. Uh, in Full Metal Jacket, of course, Vincent D'Onofrio's character has a moment where he completely flips. Yes, uh, Jack Nicholson. And even in a much subtler and more low-key way, uh, it's much more minor character, but uh, I think it's Patrick McGee who has, who does the very the very famous uh, obviously we're on a podcast so I can't really demonstrate it but there's a particular <laughs> a particular look that the characters have when they seem to be staring up through their forehead that yes seems, that is often not necessarily in this film but in subsequent films is often a uh, a sign that they have reached that point where they have flipped and become murderous yeah um, I, I guess Nicholson would would be the um the defining exemplar he really would look. wouldn't he yeah uh, I want to also, while I'm while I'm on a um, a slightly nerdy Kubrick thing, I just want to f- flip right, right to the beginning of the film because it actually opens with a narration talking about the Cold War. And I'm going super pretentious here, but it occurred to me that this opening narration followed by the fade to black is used again in terms of the tone and rhythm. It's identical to Hayward Floyd's pre-recorded speech towards the end of 2001, where he, on a little screen outlines to Dave Bowman after he's just deactivated Hal what the mission mm. is and then it fades to black and th- his delivery mm. 
Oh, right. I need to rewatch because I've only seen 2001 the once. So I might watch that tonight, actually. Yeah. Hopefully it will inspire you and you'll watch it and go, he was talking absolute rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Here's the deal. I'll watch that. I'll watch 2001 if you watch Two Way Stretch. All right. I'll have to track it down. So basically, these are tropes that that come into being in in Strange Love that you think that you feel that Kubrick is, carries on throughout his career. Yes, I feel that this is possibly the first of the modern Kubrick films, mm-hmm. where he starts to become very single minded. He's not doing conventional storytelling, and to a certain extent, Path of Glory and The Killing are similar. Uh, particularly, Path of Glory is quite single minded, and it's not. It's quite different from normal. Um, Hollywood storytelling at the time but Strange Love mm. feels different somehow and it feels more like a Kubrick film in the way that you'd recognise if you then go on to watch 2001 yeah. or The Shining in particular I think are the two that it most closely resembles in terms of tone and that kind of Kubrick singularity and to a certain extent eyes wide shut uh, it's probably a, a difficult thing to fully explain without video clips and a pointer <laughs> but that's sort of my notion that it's it's where he he gets his he really finds his voice and finds the yes. way he he evokes things and even some of the characters some of the minor characters uh like Tracy I wrote her name down Miss Reed. Scott Tracy Reed plays Miss Scott um interestingly she's the only woman who appears in the film so even in the scene where Slim Pickens is reading uh playboy and there's a playboy centerfold that's also tracy reed yeah because obviously because apart from her it's just it's a very male heavy cast isn't it which i think is appropriate for like a film about people successfully destroying the world incidentally if you haven't seen the film spoilers i'd I'd watch it first i may have i should have probably said this earlier before I, Mm. i gave away the fact that they successfully destroy the world but a film about people successfully destroying the world it's probably appropriate that it's almost entirely populated by men. Yeah, and also with regards to spoilers, I think the most famous image in the film is is that iconic shot of Slim Pickens riding an H-bomb mm. like a, a bucking bronco as it drops from a B-52. So I think most people will have a fairly good idea of how the film ends. I think so. And the first time I saw that, I had no notion of what that would look like. And even now, the the way it's filmed with the back project, projection and then the camera moving away from the bomb, so it looks like it's tipping and mm. falling with him sitting on the front of it, it's really extraordinary. Mm. And in a way, yeah. it's a shame that things like The Simpsons and other shows we got that sort of starting in the nineties, I think, that the idea of uh, comedy through reference, so referencing other pop culture yes. things, which is a perfectly valid type of comedy, but it does mean that things like Doctor Strange Love in 2001 are a bit overplayed, even if you haven't even seen them. But The Simpsons, for sure, took it and ran. They, yeah, I mean, they did They did direct references, so they could do Homer actually sitting on a bomb and actually replicating the exact same shot. Yeah. And just, yeah. You know, with his Stetson in the air, whooping and hollering. So, they, yeah, they, <laughs> they, they did it so literally that you would come to Doctor Strangelove and see it and go, oh, yeah, it's that, that shot from The Simpsons, rather than going, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I found it. <laughs> For the first time I saw it, I was just like, I've never seen anything like that shot in cinema before. You can see some of the fishing line that's <laughs> attached to the planes. Yeah, the, and the way it moves, it's a, yeah, a little bit ropey at times, isn't it? It's, it's occasionally flying sideways. Of course, going back to the Beatles, the footage, some of the footage used turned up in Magical Mystery Tour. Yes, 
yeah, this is something I, I mentioned in uh, our Retro Tube Magical Mystery Tour episode. It also oh, yes. turned up in uh, the, uh, also colorized in the Stargate sequence in 2001. The landscapes and that were obviously without the dodgy model B-52 in front of it. Um, after the narration, of course, we also get the very opening with the opening titles is essentially an aeroplane sex joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we see two jet planes, one refueling the other, and a very syrupy, softcore version of "Try a Little Tenderness" is playing over the top. Yeah, and it so it it makes it look like a very romantic scene. I wonder if that was tonally the only thing they were going for, because also because it's it's obviously warplanes with nice music over the top, so there's a kind of irony there and a, a counter scoring of this quite violent imagery of warplanes with very syrupy and lovely music over the top as well as it just being a sex joke i'm a religious man myself you know jack i believe in all that sort of thing and uh, i'm hoping you know jack yes you know what i'm here yeah, no jack let me take that for you i'll take that for you jack and uh, you know what i'm hoping jack i'm hoping you're gonna give me the code boy that's what i'm hoping and uh well, you're gonna have a little wash and brush up are you what a good idea always did wonders for a man that jack a little wash and brush up water on the back of the neck and makes you feel marvelous that's what we need jack water on the back of the neck and the code now now supposing i play a little guessing game with you jack boy i'll try and guess i'll try and guess what the code is so i think Again, if people don't know the ending, this will be touching what happens in the ending. But I, I think as well as being the first modern Kubrick film, I often think this is possibly one of the first modern films purely because of its use of music. It's one of the very first films to use counterscoring. So whereas most older films, the music would be emphatic. So if it's a dramatic scene, bam, 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 yes. Johnny Weissmuller mm-hmm. stars as, bam, 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 Tarzan. <laughs> or if it's yeah. a romantic scene, it'd be very syrupy strings and beautiful swelling, strings. Swelling, swelling yeah, strings. Yeah, that kind of thing. Mm. Whereas this, I mean, I'm, I could be wrong. I'm not a film historian, so other people might think of earlier examples. But this is the earliest example I can think of of uh, counterscoring where the music is chosen to... Uh, to contrast the mood or to um, complement the mood rather than emphasise the mood. So you've got the B-52 bombers, which in a, a different film, it would be much, it'd be, it would be military march, as it is in the main body of the film when they've got Johnny Comes Marching Home again, it's done as a military march. But even that's intended as ironic because Johnny's not going to come marching home again because they're going off to destroy the world and drop nuclear bombs. Uh, of course, yeah. And in particular, the ending music which is as i think most people know now most people will have seen the ending for which is dozens of nuclear bombs going off to the sound of vera lynn singing we'll meet again Mm. so in another director's hands it would be really dramatic horrifying music lots of blaring clarion trumpets and totally emphatic totally emphasizing what's going on screen but this is a really good example of counterscoring so well, camp scoring something that's cropped up a lot of times. Famously, um, uh, Quentin Tarantino uses it a lot. So staying yes. in the middle of you during a torture scene. But a lot of directors use it these days. Uh, another example I like is Do- uh, Night of the Living Dead. Um, the original George Romero zombie film is very emphatic. And it has it seems quite old-fashioned because it uses that more sort of... Uh, 
dramatic, bah, zombies, uh. But when you get to the second one, Dawn of the Dead, which is when he's using the Herbert Chapel library music from the shopping mall. So you have the, the zombies crawling about and wandering about and all the blood and violence to the uh, shopping mall. And it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it totally really heightens the the horror of it. Kubrick was a pioneer in terms of counter-scoring. I think so. Well, Kubrick, but also I don't know how... This is a thing that I've always read as being the case, and I don't know whether it's been debunked since, but this is the way that legend tells it, because the original ending was a custard pie fight, um, and I presume yeah. this is what they were played to test audiences, and this is what was originally going out, um, and it, it included the line, the president's been struck down in his prime, and then after... Mm-hmm jfk was killed they kind of felt this wasn't an appropriate ending so the conventional wisdom is that peter sellers called up spike milligan yeah um, we're stuck for an ending what do you think and he said oh you should have all the nuclear warheads going off and then have vera lynn singing we'll meet again so maybe spike milligan invented modern cinema as well as all (laughs) the other things that he invented yeah as well as changing the face of comedy and as well as changing the face of books and all the other things that he did so there's yeah. a, a direct line between Spike Milligan and Quentin Tarantino, basically. <laughs> I like that idea. Yes, I don't that's know. Great. I don't know how accurate I'm being, but that's this is my theory that Spike Milligan invented modern cinema, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, have you seen The Great McGonagall? I mean, that is a landmark in <laughs> terms of c- cinematic art. I'm so relieved that they didn't go or well, they didn't they ditch the idea of the custard pie fight. Oh, or I think really, they did. Yeah, they, they, yeah. Did they film it? Yeah, I've certainly seen photographs from it, so I think it was filmed. Funny enough, there was a film that came out, I think, the, the following year called The Great Race, which was a Jack Lem and Tony Curtis film. I think it was possibly Blake Edwards directed it. Okay. And that culminates in a big custard pie fight. And right. Keenan Wynn is in that. Uh, it worked in that film, but it wouldn't have worked in this film. No, I don't think so. I think it, it, it it's not a wacky comedy, even if like trailers tend to say, it's the lighter side of the Cold War. It's really not. <laughs> it may be the funnier side, but it's not at all light. And I think that kind of wacky comedy just wouldn't have sat. No, and well, it says a lot that Slim Pickens, who was brought in to play Major Kong, because mm. Sellers, Sellers either sort of weaseled out of it or genuinely did sprain his ankle, so couldn't take on the role. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. History doesn't really record what the what the true reason was, but I think he, he wasn't, Sellers wasn't comfortable with, the idea of doing the, the Texan accent. Yeah, I think he felt he was overworked and he couldn't quite nail the Texan accent. So Slim Pickens is brought in, but crucially, Kubrick doesn't tell him it's a comedy. Oh, really? Yeah, so so Kubrick just gives him the pages of the script that's got his parts. Yeah, I didn't know that. And I think Slim Pickens is absolutely great at this. I, I think he does a way i can't imagine peter sellers in this role i think he does a way better job than peter yes. sellers would have and also three roles is quite enough no one comes away from watching dr strange and i was thinking that was great but i could have done with more sellers no the, those the, the airplane scenes kind of gives a bit of a break from him great as he is in it yeah it's been it's got to be 20 25 years however long it was since i've seen any of the austin powers films yeah they were they were amusing enough at the time but you, you knew as you were watching those films that it was Mike Myers underneath all that prosthetic makeup. Yes. Whereas with this film, you could quite easily look at Mandrake and then, you know, you see the US president, Merkin Muffley, <laughs> and not realise it's the same man. Definitely. Um, I have, I've shown the film to people and they haven't realised it's 
he was doing all three roles they've just thought he was mandrake uh, yeah because he's doing this kind of this midwestern accent for muffley he's doing his his group captain voice a slightly uh terry thomas mm. voice and then of course he's doing his over the top ouija impression for dr strangelove yeah i think mandrake is almost quite clouseau as well he has that sort of i think one of the things that peter sellers is brilliant at is portraying repressed panic is really panicking desperately on the inside and is really battling not to show it. And he's great at that. That's a perfect uh, encapsulation of what he does, for sure. It's, it's almost the opposite of Gene Wilder. <laughs> yes, he's good at those explosive moments yeah. of like, no, can't cope. Yeah, I, I think uh, Peter Sellers is a proper film star. He more than holds his own against Sterling Hayden and George C. Scott. He goes in fully confident. And it's, you know, this, this chap who was doing just a silly radio comedy show is now in a Stanley Kubrick film opposite these great and difficult American actors and he's completely mesmerising and he completely holds the screen. Reminds me a bit of um, Robin Williams, if he was in a good film, could be really, really good, but was just so often cast in fluff and would just do fluff. Not necessarily wasted his talent, but possibly diluted it a little bit. You see something like One Hour Photo or um, Insomnia, it's like wow he's really good but he would you know be in patch adams as well or these these really <laughs> you know, cloying sentimental comedies and it's like yes oh. yeah well with sellers because uh, as you know a few weeks ago i i was talking with your friend adrian mm-hmm. about down among the zed men and he he basically played the blood Knot character but he was incredibly stiff he was incredibly wooden he looked very ill at ease almost. Mm. And then he goes on to make, uh, you know, a number of low budget British films. He, then he makes the lady killers, but where he's still a little bit, I, th- I think he's, cause he feels he's possibly in, in, in the room with a lot of adults, if you know what I mean. Yes. In the lady. Yeah. Killers. His, his, his big hero was Alec Guinness. Yes. So I can see yes. he'd be totally, as most people would be just completely intimidated and having to act opposite your big acting hero he then i think it's probably i'm all right jack which is is the the role that kind of where he really developed his acting chops i think with each subsequent film he just got better and better and then yeah strange love was probably the peak and then he he was kind of i guess for for the next seven eight years he was often sort of phoning it in then he came back for the panther films Mm. although they suffered from the law of diminishing returns as yes, well. they did, didn't they? And of course, being there, I guess, would have been his say, yeah, Strange Love was his peak. Being there, I guess, was his peak. But there's, this, you know, there's a good 15 years between Strange Love and being there. He's certainly always watchable, but it's whether he would pick films that would, or other people would offer films that would actually live up to his talent and what he was capable of. And this really does show what he was capable of. And I think, in particular, I wrote down, I think, possibly the best scene in it. Well, the one that on this viewing I found the most mesmerising and the the most impressive to watch is the scene just after uh, Jack D. Ripper, uh, his spirit breaks and he realises that his men have surrendered and he's com- he's a completely broken man, even though he's still trying to be a dignified mm. American general. Mm. And it's just the two, the two of them, it's a two-header. Um, Mandrake is trying to persuade him to give himself up and reveal the code so they can save the world. It's so brilliantly acted. It's really, it's really, it's, it's an intensity to it. 
and Sellers is absolutely mesmerizing it because he's the subtext between their conversation like it's the conversation is one thing but it's just loaded with subtext and he's really Sellers is just wringing everything out of it this sense of this internal sense of panic but trying to calm this guy down and trying to wring this information out of him and it's it's an I think as an acting job it's even though it's strange love himself is the one that generally impresses people and it's possibly my favorite sellers character and his my favorite of his roles that as an actual acting scene i think is where he really he really shines yes but with the scenes with mandrake and ripper that sellers very often is it's almost like he's getting so close to breaking the fourth wall just because <laughs> he's he's kind of he's he's glancing around the room nervously <laughs> And you almost expect him just to sort of glance at the camera ever so briefly. <laughs> and part of me wishes he did. <laughs> but he does. He breaks the fourth wall in um, Shot in the Dark, actually. don't know if you've oh, really? seen that. Not for a long time. Uh, the, the, the climax of that film, he, he's just so exasperated with what's going on around him. He just stares down the barrel of the camera with this sort of frown <laughs> on his face. What did you think of George C. Scott? I thought George C. Scott was amazing. I actually thought that the scenes where it's Merkin Murphy, the president, played by Peter Sellers, and George C. Scott playing General Buck Turgidson, that it was Sellers being the straight man. Yes, and it was, was yeah. George C. Scott that was doing the comedy role. And his his facial expressions, the, when he's listening on the phone, he's not saying anything, but the emotions that are cycling through his face that you can see, and he's... Chewing he, gum. He's chewing gum 100 miles Chewing gum through it. In fact... It, all three of the segments have gum quite because all the pilots, all the aircraft crew are chewing gum. Yes. Frantically as well as if they're Emerson, Lake and Palmer. <clears throat> we don't mention why <laughs> they'd be chewing gum. I just enjoy the concert footage of them all frantically chewing for completely innocent reasons. But also in the scenes with Mandrake, he's sitting on the chair and he's he's fretting with a silver chewing gum wrapper. So the gum is kind of a, a motif throughout. Is that is that because just to kind of underline the fact that they're Americans because I, th- I think of... it is. Yeah, I think back then it would have been th- thought of as a very American thing to be chewing gum. The thing I always rewind every time I watch it, I rewind it to watch it again, is the bit where George C. Scott is declaiming something. And he's walking backwards and he trips. And I think this is <laughs> yes. actually the act of tripping in real life. Yes. He trips, rolls over and stands back up and does a gesture without breaking what Just he's saying. He powers through it. He powers he? through it. And it is so funny. Well, yeah. again, the thing about it is that, so the story goes, Kubrick had said to Scott at the beginning of filming, look, we're going to do sort of rehearsal shots, just kind of goof around for the first few shots, if you like. And so, you know, I want you to be up. I want you to be really up. <laughs> you know, even if you think it's, if yeah, you feel uncomfortable, big. just really give it your all. But then, of course, we'll we'll film it for proper after that. Yeah. And, of course, it was these uh, these the rehearsal footage, so-called, that ends up in the film. And George C. Scott was... He was not happy, not very was he? Happy. No, no, which is a shame because he's he's so good in it. Yeah. Oh, he is. Because he's not one for comedy, really. Yeah. Um, he's in one of my favourite films, Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, he's in my friend Tilt's favourite version of A Christmas Carol. Oh, yes. Yeah, so he did The Changeling um, as well, which is sort of like a... That's right, yeah. A bit of an that's Owen right. Patton, style of course. thing. Um, but no, not not a guy given to um, cracking jokes particularly. But he, he was, he, yes, like you say, arguably the funniest thing in this film. I think so. The sequence with the president, Sellers, on the phone to clearly drunken Dimitri, is it Kissoff? Yes. I, I wonder quite how much of that was Sellers improvising and how much was scripted. 
I think it was largely him improvising. I think you you might have a similar note to me that he's actually he's doing some goon show dialogue in that, isn't he? When the whole it's good to be fine, you're fine and I'm fine. It's great to be fine, which is straight from a goon show. I'm sure it is. Of course it is, because Eccles used to say everything was fine. Mm, Do you know it, I never picked up on that? Yeah, I oh. think Eccles actually says it's great to be fine. So I think he, yes, I think he was channeling his the old goon show scripts at that point. I was wondering whether he'd been influenced at all by Bob Newhart. Oh, he could Bob, have been, yeah. You know what I mean? Bob Newhart used to do a lot of these one-sided conversations. He's on the phone to some unseen antagonist. That's right, of course. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give it to you straight, Willard. You, uh, you, you got a live one there, Willard. Willard? W- Willard? Willard, stop that whining. <laughs> Willard, you've got nothing to worry about. i got the manual right here in front of me. Now, you, you, you and I are going to disarm that thing, Willard. Well, I'm, I'm not coming down there, no, Willard. I, I mean, I just, I can't leave. The... Don't, don't bring it in here, Willard, no. Every time I watch this film, I, 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 all the way through, I hope it'll turn out differently. Because it's so <laughs> often it's putting hope in front of you and then pulls it away and, like, they do, they do succeed um, until they realise one of the bombers actually hasn't turned back. So they think they've saved the day by the, you know, three-quarters point. Everyone's cheering and, yeah, we've we've averted disaster because they they think they've recalled all the bombers and uh, and yet Turgeson's still quite kind of buoyed up by the fact yes. that one plane has got through yes that whole scene where he's the president is asking him whether the, the damaged bomber which is the one we're following it's the one flown by slim pickens and his his crew of uh some quite well-known um actors who were quite minor at the point including we should mention uh the great james earl jones playing lieutenant zog uh, we've mm-hmm. also got Shane Rimmer, who's uh, known to uh, Thunderbirds fans. Well, Shane Rimmer was always, there was there was a handful of American or Canadian actors living in Britain, mm. like the guy from the um, Waldorf Salad oh, yes. episode of Faulty Towers, whose name escapes me, and one or two others who would always turn up in British films or television shows when an American character was required. Yes. Shane Rimmer was one of them. Yes, and they'd turn up in Star Wars as well, which always filmed it. All, oh, yes. all these American yes. actors living in Britain would turn up in, because the Wardorf Salad guy was in Empire Strikes Back and Shane Rimmer was in Star Wars in a very minor role. Oh, do you know what? We should look up the name of that, that actor because it's so disrespectful <laughs> just to refer to him as the Wardorf Salad guy. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be... Uh... It's Bruce somebody, I think. Bruce... Oh. Bruce Bower? Yes. So just looked up. It's it's uh, Bruce Bower. Tell him if he doesn't get on the ball, you're going to bust his ass. Speaking of, of the cast uh, of Doctor Strangelove, uh, it's pretty much James Earl Jones and maybe one or two of the other less well-known crew are the only people from the film who are still with us. But then it is 55 years ago. I did enjoy the Russian ambassador, played by Peter Bull. Yes, he's good, isn't he? There is one scene, I think, when Strangelove is, is getting into his stride and letting rip about something and the Russian ambassador Peter Ball was standing behind and you can see him smirking. He starts to go, doesn't he? He starts to go. Yeah, which um, it must be so difficult to keep a straight face when he's doing all that stuff with his independent arm that does its own thing and thinks it's still a Nazi. He obviously he's the eponymous character, mm. strange love, but he he's possibly is he does he have the least screen time? Yeah, he appears he at, does. at the high I actually thought it was like within the last 20 minutes, but I, I noticed the time it is the halfway point, pretty much exactly where he first mm. turns up. You can see him in the background of some of the shots of General Turgeson. I'm wondering if that's a lookalike stand-in, because he's just one of the extras in the background. You can see his sunglasses and his distinctive 
blonde hair. Yes. But I think that's possibly a lookalike. I'm not sure they would just get Peter Sellers to sit still in the background uh, <laughs> for those shots. He's essentially playing this idea of an exiled former Nazi scientist who's come over to work for the Americans. He's sort of partly, his voice is based on the uh, 30s crime photographer Ouija, who had a, who was a, yes. a German immigrant and had a very distinctive voice. Uh, his hair and his look is based on Henry Kissinger, who I believe is still around to this day. And yes, the, the whole backstory of him being a, a former Nazi, or, or as it turns out, not quite so former Nazi. <laughs> based, I think, largely on Werner von Braun. And I, I do like the bit where he accidentally calls the president Mein Führer and is halfway through the following sentence when he realises, he says, I'm sorry, Mr. <laughs> president, but doesn't, yeah, it takes him a while to correct himself. Here's uh, the thing, right? Sorry to just mm. cut in there, but just on that point. So when I first watched this when I was a teenager, I remember not, on the one hand, really liking the strange love character, but really not liking the allusions to his nazi past oh that's interesting i i remember thinking at the time when he was saying one Führer and whatnot and doing the you know the, the nazi salute yes, involuntarily yes i remember thinking that that was really on the nose even uh, at 14 i remember thinking oh that's a bit cheesy or, or, yeah, or whatever uh, you know and it wasn't it's only on subsequent viewings that i've thought actually actually that was great so i don't know what the hell was going on with me in in <laughs> the late 80s that I would I, think I can kind of see that if you're it, I think it's one of those films that it, a lot depends on the angle you're coming at it from yeah I also again the ignorance of youth the folly of youth I remember thinking that the line gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room mm. I remember thinking oh, oh really? that's a bit obvious isn't it <laughs> like, like like I was a great comic genius that I could come up with a better line or something you know what I mean yes I mean that's a, again it's a shame that's because that's the most famous line in the film and when I saw the film for the first time I wasn't aware of it so I just took it as a hilarious joke and laughed uproariously but again it's a shame and we've just done that but we yeah, we're, we're um you know we're, we're we're blowing that comedy moment for people but I think it's it's so out in the ether there now that everyone knows you can't find oh, it yes. here this is the war room yeah, Peter Ball was in. I looked him up on IMDb. He was in hundred over a hundred films in wow. his career. To me, he seems like it feels like I should have seen him in more than I have. Mm. If that makes sense, because he, he's he's got connections with goon films and the set, not goon films, but films that the goons appeared in. So he was in Yellowbeard. I think that was his last film in '83. Oh, okay. Which have you seen Yellowbeard? No. I, 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 for a film fan, I'm doing very badly on this. <laughs> he keeps asking me if I've seen a film, and I either say no or not for a long time. <laughs> well, you, you know, I'm talk, I was talking about this this young, uh, cineast, sophisticate that I was in 1988 yeah. that I found fault with Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> I absolutely laugh like a drain at Yellowbeard when I was that age. Yeah, it's a Graham Chapman starring vehicle, and it's got like um, cameos from the likes of David Bowie, who plays a shark. <laughs> um, okay. it's got james mason and it's got peter Bo it's got spike milligan of course so there's the goon connection mm -hmm. and it's got um, peter ball who plays the queen i want to say right okay or, I or, see or a duchess yeah ah um, i must have seen him in things but yeah i i mainly mm. know him from dr strange he had turned up as a contestant on blankety blank which is uh did he yeah which is quite odd for somebody who's also acted opposite george c scott <laughs> I wrote down that 
a note I made was it's amazing how fresh it feels. Um, it, and I think the same goes for A Hard Day's Night as well. Um, mm. If you compare it to a lot of 70s and 80s films, which can seem, not all of them, but they can seem quite dated, this seems really fresh, I think. Would it be as much, would it seem as much if it was in colour, do you think? Yeah, I think possi- possibly not. I think maybe that very contrasty black and white film is has a lot to do with it. Even the the titles, the font they use, mm. it's kind of timeless. Yes, it's not super super dated. No, but you could I could see again. This is maybe a bit of a stretch. I could possibly see the likes of David Fincher using yes. that kind of typography mm. in the credits of some of his films. <laughs> I think the thing that has dated the most actually about the film is the um, the cover of the DVD box, which I presume is the original poster artwork. Oh yes, which is that incredibly sixties cartoon, and I don't think that does the film justice at all. What about the um, the subtitle, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb? I guess I've known the film for so long now that it, um, it's kind of part of it for me. It, it gives it that extra intellectual... It's, that is actually quite 60s, I suppose. It's sort of that 60s satire. Mm. It also, because I'm a big fan of Philip K. Dick as well, the uh, American science fiction writer, and he wrote a book called... Now, can I get... Because this actually wasn't his title. This was The title was superimposed onto his book... I believe against his will, as part of, as as a re, as a response to the popularity of Doctor Strangelove, uh, and it's called Doctor Blood Money or How We Got Along After the Bomb. He wrote it in 1963, so before he would have seen Doctor Strangelove, and I believe the title was given to him against his will. Oh, I see. Right, so it wasn't his own choice pressed upon him. Yes, right, okay. Uh-huh. But I saw on Wikipedia that an alternative title for this film would have been or, or was Dr. Strangelove's secret uses of Uranus. Oh, dear. I mean, that's quite that's quite uh, Terry Southern. Possibly ring of truth to it, you reckon? I don't know. <laughs> if, <laughs> if it is true, then I blame Terry Southern. Well, I, I really want to talk about the ending properly. I, we touched yeah. that earlier when you were talking about the, the use of music. I mean, the whole that whole final sequence between Shane Rimmer saying, where in hell is Major Kong, right up to the end, it's just incredibly powerful. It's difficult to know whether people generally find it like, oh, that's that's you know, it's a dark comedy, but generally quite a, you know, an enjoyable romp. Or whether you know, for that last what every fifteen twenty minutes, everyone else just has the like the the chills down the spine. I think that whole sequence of Doctor Strangelove. I I enjoy the fact that he's he's doing his antics, and no one other than Peter Bull is corpsing slightly. But the actual characters, no one's reacting to his wild behaviour. Strange Love's come up with this plan where they've all given up on the idea of preventing disaster, so they're now thinking about how we can preserve a nucleus of the human race by um, sending the um, the the politicians and top military brass down into mine shafts with some. some women they can breed with and some animals that can be slaughtered which is one of my favorite bits the female to male ratio is 10 to 1 yes yeah, so that so suddenly and i think this is also sort of quite a, a comment on the masculinity actually they're, they're all quite up for this uh, okay this mm. is, i quite, actually quite like this idea now you have to hang <laughs> with the world i'm i'm suddenly all ears uh and even the russian ambassador says i admit you have a a remarkably good idea here and so even he's sort of quite oh 10 to 1 eh but the very final moment before the we see the closing sequence with the nuclear holocaust and the vera lynn 
is Doctor Strange does saying, I have a plan. And then he gets up out of his wheelchair and he walks a few steps and then he bellows, Mein Führer, I can walk. And then it's just it just cuts immediately to the closing music. And that yes. is such a strange and startling moment because it comes out of nowhere and it's very surreal. And I'm it probably wasn't even scripted. It's probably just an edit of a of one of Peter's improvisations. But it reminds well, it, me a it, bit of um at the in 2001 where Hal suddenly starts singing. And again it's overplayed mm. so it's so familiar now, but at the time if you've not if you've seen 2001 for the first time and you've got this this murderous computer and it suddenly starts singing Daisy Daisy. Oh yes, 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 yes it does. And it reminded me a lot of that that just the film just before it ends just takes a sharp left turn just for a second well is it is see a lot of people are conflicted by this ending Mm. because a lot of people think that it should have the film should have ended with kong going down Mm. with the bomb i heartily disagree yes i do i do i I love this ending and i think obviously we've got this former nazi who's suddenly overjoyed because he's miraculously regained the ability to walk and he gets to enjoy that for approximately yeah, half seconds. a second. Yes, yes, it it it's such such a sort of ambiguous, inscrutable moment that you're not quite sure how you're supposed to take it. And I I always took it that there's, there's a sort of irony in the fact that, and I don't I want to be careful how I word this because I don't want to sort of be ableist or anything like that. But within the context of the narrative, this particular character thinking, no, oh, I suddenly I I can actually walk and I now have something to live for and again this is not my personal opinion of you know being ambulatory or not but you know within the context of the film so i wasn't sure if it's like an ironic thing or or what it is but it's it's an incredibly powerful moment yeah i always just took it as being tough luck sucker (laughs) (laughs) you got to walk for half a second yeah and you're dead die nazi scum (laughs) But I, yeah, I, I think when I watched it last night to prepare for this, I did take it in a slightly different way that it was just a suddenly surreal moment. Just a final, mm. oh, that's surprising. That, I wasn't expecting that because he says, I have a plan. So you think he's about to announce what his plan is. And he, he walks a couple of steps and just in surprise says, mein Führer, I can walk. Yeah. And that's the end of the film. Do you think that they, they had some some form of plan in the script and Sellers just decided to dispense with that and just... I think so. Do a bit of business. Yes, I, I think th- there probably would have been dialogue after that where he, you know, from a standing position, he delivers the plan. And I, I think uh, Kubrick and his editor, I didn't write down who the editor was, uh, said, how about there? What if we end there? What, that might be interesting. So, I, I, yeah, I, I could fully would fully imagine it's not scripted. As a film, do you think it could, because my son is 15 and he's uh, learning about Cold War history mm. at school. Um, now, I haven't sat him down in front of this yet. Knowing him like I do, I don't know whether he would necessarily get much out of it particularly. Yeah. But do you would you suggest that it would be something that, you know, the younger generation, God, how old do I sound saying <laughs> that, the younger generation would be able to sort of identify with it or understand or appreciate I don't see why not. I mean, I was the younger generation when I saw it. I wasn't, obviously, I'm not mm. contemporary to the film, so it was it was an artefact mm. when I saw it as well. And much as us old lads like to beat our chests and imagine that we're, we're different and better than 
following generations. I actually, I don't think we are. I think, no. and I was saying this in the last episode I was on that I think the current generations are perfectly willing and able to enjoy older things given the chance. And I think it, it will be a fascinating historical document of what actually people lived through then and what was hanging over their heads because it's contemporary to the fears of nuclear annihilation as being a daily thing and children going to school thinking I might not come home from school because the bomb might drop at any moment which is something that I think my dad said that he's like why would we go to school because we might all die duck and cover at school um I'll probably if I'm going to sit my son down in front of a film featuring slim pickens I'll probably start this one before I show him blazing saddles <laughs> yes well you could start you could start with uh, black hole oh, I've never seen that oh it's not that? very good yeah, he he plays a robot. He plays a comedy. Um, oh my god, does he? He play, Well, he no, he does the voice. He he does like a comedy R2D2 knockoff. No, no, I can't make it. My hover stabilization's gone. My main circuit's blown, and both backups are failing. You can make it. It's no use, Vincent. My useful days are finished. Were you given the means, however extraordinary, to travel back to, I don't know, April 1963 and go to Shepparton Studios and you were able to gain the ear of Kubrick and wield enough influence that you could tell him to change something? What would you change about this film, if, if anything? That's a good question. I actually think it's a nigh-on perfect film. I think the only obviously ropey thing about it is the slightly wobbly B-52 model. It's used yeah. for back projection shots. Uh, um, but no, I think I would be happy just to uh, go back there and spectate. W- yeah. Work my win as an extra somehow, possibly. But I, think <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, yeah, I don't think I'd change anything about it at all. I think we've said as much as we can at this stage about Dr. Strangelove. So, uh, Adam, this is your time to uh, plug away. Okay, yeah, so I uh, do with my friend Heather a podcast called RetroTube where we talk about uh, old TV shows from the 60s, 70s and 80s and we take take it in turns to introduce each other to uh, shows that uh, we grew up with. So Heather's really into the 60s spy shows and the swinging London shows and I like the weird, creepy 70s and 80s programmes. So uh, similar to, in a similar way to we have done today, Yes. Yes, it's really good. It's a really good podcast. Thank you. So, uh, so please, please have a listen. Uh, so, please uh, review and rate on iTunes because it really helps to get the word out there. Thank you for listening and uh, bye. Cheerio.